Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to Literary Arts, the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This episode features a conversation recorded in early fall 2023 featuring beloved, best-selling, award-winning novelist Anne Patchett, who discusses her latest novel, Tom Lake, with Portland's own Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl is, of course, the author of the super best-selling memoir, Wild, which was made into a movie, and Tiny Beautiful Things, which was adapted into a Hulu TV show and play. Anne Patchett is the owner of Parnassus Books, a celebrated bookstore in her hometown of Nashville, Tennessee, and she's a passionate advocate for independent bookstores and bookselling. And she is also, of course, one of our most beloved contemporary authors. She's the author of two children's books, four books of nonfiction, and nine novels. The New York Times Book Review has said, quote, expect miracles when you read Anne Patchett's fiction. She is masterful at portraying specific moments that shed light on universal truths, and her newest book, Tom Lake, is exemplary. Our narrator is Laura, who is at her husband's family cherry orchard with their three grown daughters, home because of the pandemic. Laura recounts her time performing at a summer theater company, although she keeps to herself some of the details of her steamy summer romance with a future Hollywood heartthrob. In true Patchett fashion, the book is about intimacy, but also about secrets and the nature of truth, about choices and roads not taken, about how during a global crisis, it's okay to be happy that your kids are home. Patchett says of the book that she set out to recreate the sense that Quote, in a world and a planet that is going to hell, there is still so much beauty and so much joy. Reviewers have called Tom Lake radiant, stunning, patch it at her best, a masterclass in the art of seamless, measured storytelling. UK reviewer Marianne Levy, I think, said it best. Patchett's writing appears so effortless that it takes a particular exertion to step back and notice just how good she is. The brilliance of her storytelling, the way a sentence comes seemingly from nowhere to knock you to your knees. Read this book to feel young. Read it to feel old. Read, most of all, to feel blazingly and tenderly and miraculously alive. It is always a joy to hear from Anne Patchett, and the connection between Cheryl and Anne makes this conversation particularly memorable. Here's Cheryl Strayed kicking off the event with her new best friend, Anne Patchett. Ann Patchett, welcome to Portland. Cheryl Strait, I'm so glad to be in Portland. I am so happy and so excited to be here, but to be with you. Oh, right back at you, baby. Um, Because we've never (laughs) met, but now we really, we have really met tonight. We've met in the biggest possible way. We've been through a lot back in the green room. (laughs) Because it's, you know, it is... I said this to you when we met an hour ago, um, that we, I feel like you have been a friend to me for a long time. 
Yes. Part of the, partially is for your work. I don't think I'm alone in feeling that, right? Um, but then in the world, the literary world, and we have mutual writer friends, and yeah. I hear stories about you, and I just, I love you already. I love you too. I mean, it is really like, <laughs> it's not even a joke, like I do. Um, dear, I do think do, we... Listen, dear sugar, oh. <laughs> it means everything. It is an act of radical compassion. And it is the book that we sell at Parnassus more than any other book. And it's not just me, it's every single person Aww. in the staff. It's what people need at every moment. It's, it's kind Thank of you. just a magic box of a book. And no matter where you are, good or bad, the answer's in there. Oh, so thank, thank you, you. Anne. That's so thank kind. You. Thank you. So I'm just, I am so happy. So I'm happy too, because we get to talk about your beautiful new book, Tom Lake. Thanks. So we can't see you, but we can hear you. I'm curious. So <laughs> we we're going to do, a, we're going to do, we're, you're going to, you're going to hoot. If you've read the book, hoot now. Okay. If and you're going to start reading the book. Tonight, hoot now. Okay, it's, it's, it's about half and half, right? It's so interesting, and we won't spoil anything That's, at all. Yeah. But the, one of the weirdest things about being on this particular tour, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at them, even yeah. though I can't, it's weird, but I can't Into see Into the you, darkness. But, um, is that from day two, the people who came to the events had read the book. Yeah, I've never had that experience before. Where well, people, you know why, Anne? You know, where people were like, oh, I, I finished it in the parking lot 15 minutes ago, and then I came into the event. I was like, It's Seriously? because you're a national treasure. <laughs> it is. You know what happens when you're a national treasure? People buy your book the day it's published. Do you know Todd Doty? I do. Of course you do. Todd Doty is the one who called me a national treasure. And no <laughs> doubt he called you a national treasure too. There is an amazing book that Todd Doty wrote called Little Pieces of Hope. Little Pieces of Hope has a bad cover. It's very, mis you know, bookstore owners, this is the way we talk. Uh, it's very misleading. Do you know this book? I don't. Okay. I'm so I know Todd, but not the book. I'm so I feel bad. Todd is the head of publicity at Doubleday. And, and it's like, he's the person, for example, just to put it in perspective, when Bono was in Nashville and wanted to come by the store, Todd is the person who brings Bono over to the store. That's, that's the level on which Todd operates. And he is, he is my true friend. Uh, and I'm glad that he's not my publicist because we can just be friends. But he wrote this book called Little Pieces of Hope. And it's the story strangest and most successful book. It's a book of lists. That's all it is. And every list on different pages lights up these places in your brain that you didn't even know were there anymore. It's, it's such a deep pleasure. And are, is one of the lists, who's a national treasure? <laughs> he will just say, you know, 
1967 photograph of Jackie Onassis crossing the street. Cheryl Strayed National Treasure. Um, Bloody Marys at 7 a.m. in Provincetown. It's like that, and you're just sort of like, oh, uh, Cocteau's Orpheus. You're so like, is, it, oh, is oh. it poetry? Is it like avant-garde poetry, or what is this? No, it's just little pieces of hope. Okay, that's, that's good. Yeah. A Bloody Mary in Provincetown? Sounds hopeful to me. It, Absolutely is. And so part of being a bookseller is throughout the night, I will stop the conversation to recommend a book because anything that triggers anything in my brain is connected to book recommendations. Well, you're, you're in the right time. You know, Portland's a book town. Portland's a book town. We know you have Parnassus and Nashville. And, and let me tell you, Portland is a book town as proven to me today by the terrific people from Broadway Books. Yes. Oh, my gosh, not only, not only do I stand on both sides of the signing table, half the time I'm the person signing, but the other half of the time I'm the person flipping over the boxes of the books and flapping them and shoving them in front of an author as fast as I can go. These people are professionals. They are. And they are entertaining and fantastic readers that made me feel like I had never read a book in my life because they just kept throwing out titles and I was like, I haven't read that, I haven't read that, I haven't read that. They're amazing. So, you know, Broadway Books is my actual neighborhood bookstore, my indie bookstore. And the owners, Love Sally that. and Kim, are dear friends of mine and their whole staff is fantastic. So, yes, I'm with Spectacular. you Spectacular. Thank you. Listen, um, this, is, this is what my job is in life. Thank you for supporting your independent bookstores, and you know this, and you don't need me to tell you, but you don't miss the water till the well runs dry. And small businesses stay in business because you take care of us, and we are grateful. That's right. So, so Anne. Yes. Yeah. And listen, enough with the clapping. You're going to wear yourself out. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about your book, your most recent book. Sure. Let's. So, let's begin. How, how, what's the genesis story of this book? How did, how did it, what was the idea, the original seed of this idea of this beautiful story? Let's start at the very beginning. Uh, so usually I get an idea for a book while I'm writing a book. So I had the idea for this book when I was writing The Dutch House. And it, what did I tell you? Okay, you can laugh. <laughs> you can hoot. How about they snap? They well, you know, I would. I like to suggest jazz hands, but we can't see you. You, you can, you can okay. snap. Or right, it's like preschool, you know. Okay, kids. Okay, so I had what I call a three-cell idea, which is one of those ideas that if it dies, you're not going to miss it. Uh, Did you say a, a three-cell idea? A three-cell idea. It sounds a little bit dirty. Unpack that for me, Cheryl Strayed. It just seems kind of, I don't know, it's like a menage a trois of a book. <laughs> no, it was like a book, it's like an idea that is so nascent, it's only three cells. You know, if something happened, oh, you wouldn't even... cells, like, okay, got it. You know, like human life made yeah. up of little yeah. cells, yeah. right? Okay, so, um, so I had this extremely 
small idea uh, that I wanted to write a book about our town. And I wanted to write a book about a woman who had played, a grown woman who had played Emily in our town and how that had shaped her life. And that was really all of the idea that I had. But it, you know, it floated around in the back of my mind and I finished writing The Dutch House and I went on tour and I went to Peterborough, New Hampshire where my friend Katrina Kennison lives. Does that name ring a bell? Okay, the reason that the name Katrina Kennison rings a bell is because she was the series editor for Best American yeah. Short Stories for 22 years. Right. And the last one she did was 2006, which was mine, and we became very good friends. So Katrina's one of those people that I always stay with. She's, if any of you ever get the chance to stay in Katrina Kennison's guest room, <laughs> take it. It's the best. Uh, so I was staying with Katrina, and doing a couple of events, she'd drive me to Cambridge, she'd drive me to Manchester, and I would do an event and then come back and sleep at her house and do laundry, which is a huge factor during book tour because you can't ever wash your clothes. And uh, we were taking a hike and she said, what are you gonna do next? Now, I would never tell anyone about my three-celled idea because there's just nothing to say. But because we were in Peterborough, New Hampshire, which is where the McDowell colony is, which is where Thornton Wilder wrote Our Town, I was really feeling it. And I said, I want to write a book about a woman who played Emily in Our Town in high school. And in the woods, Katrina stops, and her eyes get really big, and they fill with tears. And she said, I always wanted to play Emily <laughs> in our town. And she had grown up in New Hampshire, near Peterborough, and she said, I tried out for my community theater production of Our Town when I was 14. I wanted to play Emily, but I was really small and I was cast as Rebecca. So Rebecca, George Gibbs, has a younger sister, Rebecca. So it's George and Rebecca in one house, the Gibbs house, and in the Webbs house, it's Emily and her little brother, Wally. Wally. Oh, yeah. bless you. Bless you, you, saw, you just saw that senior moment pass over my face and you were like, Wally, thank you. Um, anyway, so Katrina was playing Rebecca and she fell in love with George. So she fell in love with the guy who was playing her older brother, who was super hot. And like he, she in real life fell in love with the guy who in the she, play. Yeah, yes. exactly. Uh -huh. And she's 14 and he's 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has a car and he plays the guitar. And it's, you know, he's, he's something. Uh, and what happened is that later on, like two years later, they did another play. I can't remember what the other play was, but they played, They were cast as boyfriend and girlfriend. And there was an enormous amount of onstage kissing that went on every night that then became offstage kissing. Anyway, she's telling me this story, and I'm just thinking, it's like the tumblers are going click. Click, right, click, right. click, yeah, right? So it's the bad guy. It's the good bad guy. It's the hot guy. It's the guy who plays your brother, 
but because I'm not going to totally rip off Katrina's life, I think, oh, I'll make it the guy who plays her father. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be strange at all, See, right? Yeah, that's a little, this is what I mean about, yeah. Yeah. Um, why, why were you drawn to our town? I mean, what about that play is compelling to you? I want to say one more thing about Katrina. Oh. Okay. Just hang on one again, and then I'm going to come back to our town. So then I, I thought I was going to write that book, that book. I thought I was going to write that book. But then there was the pandemic, and I ended up writing These Precious Days. And by the time I was finished, I, I wasn't interested in writing that book anymore. It was like I had waited too long. And Katrina just nagged me to death. And she kept saying, when are you going to write the R-Town book? When are you going to write the R-Town book? When are you going to write about that guy? When are you going to write it? I was like, you know what? If you're so interested in the R-Town novel, why don't you go home and write it yourself? And she was like, no, you've got to write this book. So we had this thing. And she, really, it was her badgering uh, that got me to do it. Because if you have an idea and then you write a whole other book, I don't usually go back to that idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's that. So why R10? That's really, that's really fascinating. Yeah, it's like that's why I cut you, you off were basically and wanted bullied to tell into, you that. You were like bullied into writing the book. Yeah. Just like, yeah. So, but what, yeah, what is it about our town? I love our town. I love our town. When I was nine, my best friend Tavia Cathcart's father, who was a drama teacher at a giant public high school in Nashville, where we lived, directed Our Town, and Tavia and her sister Tracy were just two of the extra kids. That was the first time I saw it. And then I was probably 14 when we read it in school, and I'm 59, and I think I've read it at least once a year, every year since. And it's meant very different things to me. Mm -hmm at different times in my life. But at this point in my life, in which the only role that I could still play would be the stage manager, um, <laughs> I feel like our town is really a Buddhist text. You know, I feel like it's about keep your eyes open uh, because the small moments of every day are in fact life. And if you miss those small moments because you are looking for something else, you will miss your life. Mm. Uh, and it just kind of whacks me back right. into line. When I... F okay. Well, no, let's give them maybe to get it out of their system. You can <laughs> clap now. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> okay. And Patchett, right. National Treasure. Okay. So... so when I went on book tour with Robin Price Glasser, who I love so much, uh, Robin Price Glasser was the illustrator for the juggernaut known as Fancy Nancy, and we did two <laughs> children's books together. And, and I did them only because I was so madly in love with her and I wanted to hang out with her. And when we go on book tour, it's just seas of little girls mm. who are in love of, with Fancy Nancy, and they have no idea who I am. And it's my dream. Right. So I'm just in the back with a goat and a lamb puppet doing this while Robin is talking. But the kids are all on the floor, and they're bitty. They're little bitty things. Right. And so she has a slideshow, and she'll put up a picture of a piglet, and 
that just doesn't work with 200 six-year-old girls, you know, that you cannot bring them back from right. that place. And so she does this thing where she has them scream and then she says, all right, you scream, 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 and now I'm gonna clap three times and when I clap three times, you fall into perfect stillness. And then she puts the picture of the piglet up on the screen and they lose their minds and she claps three times and they're like. <laughs> so I feel like that's what you just did. That yeah. was the point of that story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have any piglets uh, tonight, but we will periodically let you release your claps. How about that? <laughs> that's good. So what you just said, that beautiful thing you just said that that you, your, your interpretation, your most recent interpretation of this play you love, so much resonates for me when I think about what Tom Lake is about, this book. Um, for, since not everyone in here has read it, can you, can you give us a, a, a brief description, you know, your elevator pitch of what, what is this book about? Yes. I'll have to come back to you on this, but it, elevator pitches are so funny because yeah. when you're writing the book and somebody says, what's the book about? And yeah. you're like, do you have two hours? Yeah. No. This and is then by the time the book comes out, it's like, it's the difference between youthful love and married love. Yeah. Thank you very much. Good night, Portland. Uh, <laughs> when, do you know Janet Silver? Do I know? Do you know Janet Silver? She used to oh, be yeah. the, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. the editor at Hope Mifflin. And when my first novel came out, she was the editor. And she, that's what she told me. You know, before your book comes out, figure out how to s describe it in a sentence or two. Yeah. Because it's overwhelming. Because I think every writer is like, my book is about everything. It's right. about all the, pr it's about love and loss and, you know. And, it, and, and so, you know, I just, I want to get into, there's so many things about this book. It's primarily set in Michigan. It's, yeah, we are, uh, you know, in, in, on a cherry farm. There are actors. I'll do I have better. a million questions I'll, I'll about a, those things. I'll give a bigger, I'll give a bigger pitch. So, okay. okay. So the, the book takes place in two narrative tracks. One is in 2020 at the beginning of the COVID, uh, the beginning of the COVID, the beginning of COVID. Uh, and Laura and her husband own a cherry farm in Traverse City, Michigan. Their three daughters come home as adult children did come home during the pandemic and they have to work in the orchard because they don't have the big picking crew that they normally would have. And the girls badger their mother to tell them the story of when she was 24 years old and she was a very promising actress and she went to a summer stock theater company called Tom Lake to play Emily in our town for the third time, because she played it once in high school, once in college, now at Tom Lake, and she falls in love with a guy named Peter Duke, who is playing her father. And um, at the end of the summer, she quits acting, and at the end of the summer, Peter Duke goes on to be the most famous actor of his generation. And it, the story goes back and forth between these two tracks. What's interesting about that from a writing perspective is when you read a book that has two separate discrete narrative lines, what almost always happens is the reader likes one better than the other. And, and what that means is you read the part that you don't like as well more quickly 
so that you can, it's not a joke, I mean, we really do this. Um, and so you can get back to the part that you like and you read that part more slowly. And so the trick is to figure out how to make the reader read at an even keel. And how I did that was by having the daughters interrupt her, uh, which I hadn't meant to do. There's a great children's book called Interrupting Chicken. Do you all know Interrupting Chicken? Where the chicken is, yeah, where the chicken is trying to tell the story to the little chicken. Do you know this one? No, is this a children's book? Yeah, it's a picture book. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah right. I haven't read that. Stick. <laughs> It won't take you that long. <laughs> and the little chicken keeps interrupting the story. And the mother's like, could you just shut up for one minute and, and we're going to get there. And that's, Which is what I understand you're supposed to say to small children. Right, if they right, exactly. Yeah. Quiet. I'm going to write a parenting book next, so that's good, good job. <laughs> so her daughters keep doing that. And I hadn't, I hadn't meant for that to happen. But she, this is a story about storytelling, and she, so she's telling this to her daughters, and there's this moment early on where she says, and then I dropped, her name is Laura, I dropped the U out of my name. And they're like, wait a minute, what? You had a U in your name? And then as soon as they broke in to her narrative, I was like, oh, I get it now. And now I see how this is gonna work. Well, I love also the way that that thing you just described not only works, but contributes to, I think, this idea of even what, what story is and whose story is the truest one. I love the way that those daughters have a version of their mother's life that they believe to be true. And there are many points in the novel, those of you who have read it know, where they'll say, no, 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 that's not true, mom. Right. And the mom will be like, no, I swear, because it's like me and my body, and I know. Right. And... What they're disputing is like they've, you know, they, we all do this, right? We, we fill in the blanks. We, we, we write our own stories of the people we love in our, in our minds. And when then they tell us a different truth, it's, it's discombobulating. It's sometimes, and I love, it's, it's a place, I think, in the book that's not only a little bit funny, but it's very moving to me about this relationship between these young adult women and their mom, and they're trying to negotiate this new version of their mother. Right, right. There's a moment in which she says, and you know, then after I left Michigan, I went back to California. And they said, no, no, you didn't go to California then. You know, yeah. you went to New York then. And they, they basically, in some ways, they, they adore her, but they also treat her like she's a fool, because that's how we treat our parents. Right, uh, And it's so hard to really and truly believe that your parents existed before you existed. And it really I, is. It really is. I mean, as evolved and story-based mm -hmm. as we are, they start when we start. Mm -hmm. And there was a point in my life a long time ago when I was going to write a nonfiction book about the Los Angeles Police Department, and my father was a police officer in Los Angeles, and I wanted to write a book about his career, but also about the police academy and uh, you know a bunch of things. And I was interviewing him, and it was 
unbelievable how many things I had wrong that I just absolutely took to be fact. Hmm. And also, I wrote a piece, and it's the first piece in these precious days, and it was in The New Yorker, and it's called The Three Fathers, and it's about my mother's husband, and I mean my father, and then my mother's subsequent two husbands. Uh, and because it was in the New Yorker, uh -oh, we have a clapper. I, yeah, that was that was stealth. I was just security, ignore it. Security, yeah, no, um, yeah. So <laughs> we'll let you know when you can clap. <laughs> so it but got, wait, uh, can it, they clap for these precious days? No, not not. <laughs> oh, this is like a good cop, bad cop situation, right? Right. So anyway, I published the piece in the New Yorker, and it was the first piece I had ever published in the New Yorker, and I had never been through a New Yorker fact check. Sweet mother of God. Oh, I know, yeah. I had no idea. And Nima Jerome, I mean, my stepsister Tina kept saying, Nima's coming for Thanksgiving this year, isn't he? Our brother, Nima, the fact checker from the New Yorker, who's become such an important part of our family, he's gonna be for the holidays, right? So Nima talks to everybody in my family. Like he talked to my mother for four hours. He, my sister, my step-siblings, yeah. my aunts and uncles who are, my father's siblings who are still alive, all three of the fathers were dead. And Nima found things out about my father that I didn't know. Right, because she's grilling. Yeah, like calling people. my yeah. uncle yeah. And, and asking questions about my grandfather, John's father, things that I had written about in the article that I just got wrong. Yeah. Because I was coasting on these stories that I had known my whole life, but hey, I made them up. But there you go, like you thought you were telling the truth. That's right. It wasn't that you were lying, you were mistaken. <sighs> you know, <laughs> it's such an interesting thing, and it's, it's something that actually I have thought about. This is what, when people say, is the book true, is it autobiographical? And it's like, well, yeah, if you count my experience with The New Yorker and Nima Jerome and Katrina Kennison in the woods of New Hampshire, and how these stories that aren't true, but for some reason, mm -hmm. we pick up little pieces over the years and then we glue them together without knowing that we're doing it. And it, they become true in our own right. mind. And where did I double down on that in recent American history? It was the Trump administration. <laughs> um, and it's not that I have compassion because I don't. But, but I also, you can make these jokes in Portland, you can't make them in Tennessee. But, but you can understand, I mean, the guy, it's not like he's lying, he believes this because he's cobbled together these right. things and then he's, he's said them and other people have said them back on the news and then he's like, look, you know, and, and then it becomes the truth. truth. It, but it's not the truth. It's right. not the truth, but also when I thought that my 
grandfather worked at Columbia Pictures, but he worked at Universal, and I thought that he built sets, but he was a machinist. Right. Right? Okay, but I would have sworn to you that my version was the truth. You see what I'm saying? I do. I mean, I think it's different than what Trump is doing, <laughs> but... Also, Anne, if you want to move to Portland, I think Broadway Books is hiring. <laughs> oh, I would love to work at Broadway Books. So, there are parts of yourself in, in all of the, in all, I think in all the stories that any of us tell, right? But you also, I'm going to guess, did a bunch of research for this book because you're not a cherry farmer as far as I know. Have you ever acted? Have you ever been in a play or a I have never acted. I mean, I was in a couple of plays in high school, but I was mostly the person who painted the scenery. Uh, and I was never a cherry farmer. I was never an actress. I was never a mother. Um, right. But I'm, right. I make stuff up professionally. That's, that's what I do. And how did you, like, how did you, all the cherry farmer stuff was, okay. and the landscape of, of northern Michigan it's so vivid. It's, isn't it? You can clap for that. Okay. It was so beautiful. Wait, you know what? We're giving them a really mixed message. <laughs> We're like parents. Okay. And you're going, clap. And I'm going, don't clap. And they're going... <laughs> you know? But see, I'm, I need to be like the guardian of you as a national treasure. So you need applause sometimes, no. right? You okay. Know. Let's go back to northern Michigan. <laughs> I have a whole riff on applause that I can do that's funny. But all right, Northern Michigan. So I went to Northern Michigan for the first time in 2001 when I was on book tour for Bel Canto. Don't clap. Don't you And care. I was sent to Petoskey, Michigan, and my favorite bookstore, McLean and Aiken, and I became good friends with the Norcross family, and the, you can buy a cup of cherries for a dollar during cherry season in the Traverse City Airport. I later became very good friends with Ben and Aaron Whiting in Traverse City, Michigan. I could just stand up here for an hour and tell you about Ben and Aaron Whiting. Such a great story, such great people. But Aaron and I both went to Sarah Lawrence. She is much younger than I am. She grew up on a cherry orchard in Northern Michigan and after school, she founded a professional theater company. And while I was working on this book, she got an incredible job offer, a life-changing job offer that was so great that she left this theater company after years and years and years of working there and went to work for this woman who turned out to be a complete scam. And she had then no job at all. And I said, I'm so sorry for you, however, this is actually gonna work to my advantage. <laughs> and I'm just gonna put you on the payroll. And I would send her lists of questions about cherries wow. and plums and peaches and, and apples and, the and trees that, yeah. and, and theater companies and summer stock. Right. The things I didn't know about scheduling and that you come and you rehearse, you rehearse all day long, but then when your play opens, the day your play opens, you're then rehearsing for the next play during the day. So suddenly I thought, oh my gosh, she could be in a play in rehearsal during the day in which she's having to be one person. And I said to Erin, all right, this is 1988, what plays would they be doing? Mm -hmm. She sent me a list. 
Fool for love, Sam Shepard. Bingo, that's what I want. Right. Go from hot sex during the day to I'm Emily in our town wearing a pinafore at night. Right. That would really mess with your head. And then you've got sweet cherries, which you have to pick off the tree one at a time. The tarts, which they have their shakers, they take them off mechanically. I went up there several times and I said, you know, this is the kind of farm I want. This is the size... And she said, oh, I know the farm. Barb Wunsch has a farm. This is the farm you want. And Aaron and I went to Barb's farm, and it was unbelievable. It was the perfect farm. And Barb took us all throughout the farm and showed us everything. I take pictures of all the machinery. We walk through the orchards. I meet all of the people who work there. We get off the road. We take this tiny path through a very deep, dark woods. And then suddenly we're at the edge of Lake Michigan and Grand Traverse Bay. And, and, and it's, it's incredible. And I'm taking mad notes about these are the trees and this is the season and this is when this happens and this is when that happens. And the book comes out and I do five days of touring in northern Michigan. I do two days in Traverse City. And Barb Wunsch has a barbecue for me, has a lunch for me and all the workers come. And to go back, it was such an our town moment, to go back into Barb's kitchen, which I had been into, but to go back after writing this book, to go back through those fields, through those trees, through the woods, back to the bay, it was breathtaking. It was, it was really like walking into my book. And that's what our town is like. The third act, I'm sorry if you haven't read it or seen it, I'm going to wreck it for you right now. Uh, in the third act, Emily dies in childbirth and she's in her 20s and the stage manager says, you can go back for one day. They don't want her to, but she's going to. She begs them. And, she, and to be clear, the stage manager is a character in the play. That's right. And if you manager. don't want to spend an hour and a half of your life reading it, you can pull it up on YouTube and you can watch Paul Newman play it. Okay. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. But she goes back as an adult and she's looking at her mother, you know, mama, mama, look at me. You're so young. You're so beautiful. Just stop and look at me. And that's how I felt going back to the lunch farm. Wow. Yeah. So a funny thing happened. I, I'm, I, I'm upset. I love really good fruit jams. And I mean, I, Me buy, too. I buy all kinds of local jams, so don't worry. But I also love this company, American Spoon, which has all these jams uh, from Michigan. And I'm just, you know, buying some jams a few weeks ago. And I ordered my sour cherry jam that I love. And what does it say? on this particular jam bottle. Ann Patchett's sour, sour cherry jam in honor of Tom Lake. How did you, it really does. And then I'm like, what do I do? I got four jars, but I'm like, are you allowed to eat the jam of a national treasure? Or do you like keep it, you know, for, I mean, I should have brought it to have you sign my jam jar. <laughs> so like, what, what, huh? Like, how'd that happen? Oh, Cheryl, I am such a freak. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, I own a bookstore, and I am, I am retail, and I 
love American Spoon, and Aren't they I great? love, love American, and they're classy. Yeah. Everything's gorgeous. I know. I, I, I give their jams as gifts a lot. They're amazing. Yeah. And so I thought, I wonder if they would do a branded Tom Lake sour cherry jam okay. for me. And I call HarperCollins. HarperCollins has like a swag division. I call the swag division. I was like, I want some jam. And, and they call and they call and they call and they can't get anybody to return their call. So I call my friend Julie Norcross, who owns McLean and Aiken. In Michigan. In Petoskey. And I was like, I bet you know the American Spoon people. And she was like, sure, I know the American Spoon people. And I said, I want my own jam. And she was like, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. And she okay. called me back in 10 minutes and, and the, the head of American Spoon called me and he was like, you want your own jam? Of course we'll give you your own jam. Okay, so. But it's crazy. When I, when my, for my next book, I want a damn jam. You, you know, this is, this is a dog leg, but my favorite thing about going on book tour is going into the independent bookstores and finding the best sideline, which are the things that you sell. You know, we don't have a ton of them, but you want them to be really good, the weird things that you sell. Because this is the way it is in, with books, the profit margin is fixed. And you get, depending on if you order them directly from the publisher or the distributor, you're gonna make maybe 45% off the price of a book. But you can't change the price of the book based on, say, what your rent is. So if you've got a bookstore in Tupelo, Mississippi, or you've got a bookstore on 80th and Park in New York, you're gonna make the same amount of profit either place. But sidelines, greeting cards, socks, coffee cups, candles, the things that you're like, oh, if you were a classy yeah. book you store, you wouldn't sell that nonsense. Well, you just wait till you open a bookstore <laughs> and you're gonna be selling that nonsense too. Okay, my two, so I'm always looking for sidelines now. I've Is got the jam. jam at Parnassus? Oh, Has anyone on your tour jam asked you? at Parnassus? Of course, Cheryl? it's the whole thing. What is, is jam? the point? We're selling jam. <laughs> All right, but this is a port. It says Ann Patchett's Tom Lake jam on the label. So wait, but I, wait has wait, anyone else asked you about the jam? Am I the only you're one? The, you're the I only one. The, yeah, yeah. You, you found it. I found the and jam. And also American Spoon sold out of the Ann Patchett Tom Lake jam so you guys on day one. Day one. All right, but I got to tell you, because this I have is four jars of the damn jam. <laughs> Oh my God! You could like I know, scalp I could it. You could them scalp off. the jam. I could. I could do that. They they right did a second printing. They the went jam. into a second printing. All right. This is an important Portland story about okay. sidelines. So this <laughs> is years ago. I'm in Powell's to do an event, and I got there early, and I did the signing, and I'm wandering around the store before the event, and I go to check out, and they've got a box of hedgehogs at the cash register. Little guys, about the size of a goose Chocolate egg. Chocolate hedgehogs? No, or? no. They're little stuffed hedgehogs. Oh, okay, okay. Five bucks for a hedgehog. I pick up the hedgehog, and I say to the guy behind the counter, how are you doing with these hedgehogs? <laughs> and he leans over, and he says, seriously? We don't even have to sell books. And 
I was with my friend Miley Malloy, a writer who I deeply love. Miley Malloy, yeah. fabulous. And I go back to her and I say, look at this hedgehog I just bought. And she went, can I have that? <laughs> I think we've sold something like 4,000 hedgehogs. I'm not even joking. Don't yeah. get me started on the log pillows. Oh, no, I, I own a log pillow Do that I you? bought at Powell's. Yeah, it's like a little neck pillow. Yeah, you yeah. You those little uh, micro beads. Yeah. Um, like People neck walk pillows. out Do of the bookstore like this. It looks like a log. With the log pillows. Yeah. Because the log oh, pillows... Oh, you sell the log pillows at Parnassus. Oh, we sell those log pillows, yeah. yeah. It's a stuffed animal for boys who can't admit that they still want a stuffed animal. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. You can be like 25... And, you, and they walk out holding the log it's pillow. It's very cuddly, yeah. yeah. It's a very nice log. You um, know what, I've, I've got I've to pitch some books before because... Yeah, well, and also gonna, we have to talk about your book some we, more. Yeah. I think we, we've covered that. No, we haven't. We haven't covered it. Okay, so the research you did, you, that's, and you, you lined up the jam, that's all Hedgehogs, fabulous. logs, jam, okay. So one of the things I loved about this book was this wonderful constant interweaving point and counterpoint of like they're in this wonderful like comf comfortable family of course it's the pandemic but they're also gathered together and they're basically loving with each other and they're basically they're working hard but they're having a fun time and yet the story that the mother is telling is the, the opposite of that, one of like discomfort where she's trying to find her way and she's struggling with you know, this romance that she ends up having with, with Peter Duke and um, the, the struggle of like, who is she? and Does she want to be an actress? And what, what happens with that? And I, I was just curious about your experience writing about that happiness and ease and comfort, which I think is harder to write about than to write about conflict. And, the, you know, in some ways reflect, you know, is, is a counter to the story that she was telling, where it is a story where she was struggling. And I'm just curious about that process of how you structured those two narratives alongside each other. It's, it's so much easier to write about bad boyfriends than good husbands. Yeah. And, and they're both in this story. Yeah, absolutely. The, the guy that burns the house down, really anybody can write about him. I'm serious. But, but to write about love and especially, you know, kind of overly familiar tired love, like we've been together forever. We just know, we don't have to, there's just some moment in there where she says, she could just turn the volume off and you know exactly what he's saying. Yeah. Um, but she says it in a But in a not in a bad way. way, because you live with anybody that long, and you know that's true. And what's interesting about that to me is that that can be like the, the death of a relationship, but it can also be one of the deepest pleasures. Absolutely. Depending on how you feel about it. And also depending on the decisions you make about it. Right. Well, and this is a happy marriage, this, this depiction. Right. But she is recounting a really unhappy ultimately. I mean, really unhappy, but, but scorching hot. Scorching hot. I mean, you've nailed the, the bad boy, sexy, hot dude. You know, like I recognize um, Duke 
very, you know, I, I mean, I felt didn't like we you all, were, yeah. Didn't we all, Cheryl? All the, all the boyfriends of your 20s. All the men I've loved before. Yeah, right. And yet here she's, what I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is she's telling that from this position of, of being in this wonderful contentment. Yeah. So I guess it's contentment and discontentment. And yes. that's very much the, these two narratives that I found really interesting and moving. And tr that the well, thank you. And trying to not convince her daughters, but explain to her daughters that the guy who is so charismatic and nuts and will make you miserable, but is also amazing, the never ending roller coaster ride of those relationships, you don't actually want that later in your life. You don't marry that guy. You're really glad you had that guy when you had him, when you had the energy for him. But later on in life, you don't sit around and think, oh, wow, you know that poet that I knew in graduate school, the one who was drunk at one o'clock in the morning and wandering around downtown, and he could roll his own cigarettes with one hand. Why didn't it work out with us? Yeah. I really miss him. He shoplifted a lot. He had a bicycle. <laughs> he was an hour and a half late for every dinner party. Oh my God, it's like I'm having a flashback. Exactly. <laughs> I just, We're now I just, just hearing just... the stories of all your old loves. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting about that though, um, what the daughters kind of want, and, and I think what a reader, I guess the kind of like expectation, like the, the trope is this middle-aged woman mm -hmm. recounts this hot love affair to her young adult daughters. And, and the, the conclusion that she's gonna come to is, you know, what has she done with her life? Regret. Regret. The trope is regret. Like I should, have, I should have taken that other path because that other path was more adventurous or more risky or more, you know, fill in the blank. Like that, that is, I think, to some degree, what would be the expected trajectory of this narrative. And I'm curious, were you ever tempted by that? Or did you always know, no, I'm gonna tell a story about a woman who is happy and content and who is not at all at odds with the decisions she, she made. And not just about romance. I think a really interesting, I think probably the most interesting decision that she made was about her acting career. And, and you know, what she did with that. I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, I'm curious if you ever thought about going the other way. No. Well, and you know, this is just the way I work. So I had thought about this book for years. So any moment in which I thought about going in a different direction, I work that out. And then when I make up my mind, I sit down and write the book. You want to know the really weird thing about this book, the last decision I made about this book before I started to write it? What? I couldn't decide who the narrator was, if it was Laura or Sebastian. Ooh, really? And it was... How could it be Sebastian? Because I had two entirely different novels in my head, mm -hmm. totally different with the same people. And I couldn't decide which one I wanted to write. And it wasn't that I thought one would be better than the other or mm -hmm. more interesting than the other. It was that I just, it was like a fork in the road and I had to pick. And the reason that I picked Laura was because the Dutch house 
had a first-person male narrator, and I didn't want to do it twice. Right. Isn't that weird, though? It is, yeah. because, it, well, it just completely changes the, the novel totally in my mind. It. And there's part of me that thinks maybe someday I'll go back and write that other novel yeah. with Sebastian that, that wouldn't be about Laura. I mean, Laura would be like a walk-on, but, yeah. but that book about what would it be like to spend your life taking care of your brother who was famous and charismatic and talented and nuts and from childhood all the way on what would it what what would that life have been like for Sebastian that's an interesting story to me so you I, I've I've read in essays of yours that you you really kind of lay out a novel in your mind and then you write one one thing that you said that really both fascinated and disturbed me is um, you said you're very disciplined, which I share that in common with you, but then you went on to say, and you don't pro procrastinate, which I do not share with you. And I'm curious, like, how? I have an answer to this story, and it's a new answer, and it's so interesting. I really want to write about this. Okay, so one early Saturday morning, I'm in the back room of the bookstore, with Sissy, Sissy, who had me bring her old hardback copy of Wild. I was like, sis, I am going on four planes. I don't want to carry your hardback copy of Wild to Portland to get Cheryl to sign. And she was like, you're gonna do it. Uh, so anyways, Sydney- it, it's, You've done it, and like I all did. over the country, that, yeah, driving that was. damn book. It's like, it takes up like a quarter of your carry-on rolly bag, right? That's right, that's exactly right. Okay, so early Saturday morning, the store's not open, I'm in the back room signing books, and Sydney and Sissy are there. And I am talking about the fact that I am, at this moment, right before I leave on book tour, signing 23,000 tip sheets. A tip sheet is a piece of paper that you sign and then you mail it back to the publisher and they take it to press and they sew it into the book so that a bookstore in Omaha, where I am not going, can have signed copies of the book, 23,000. And I, so I'm talking to Sid and to Sissy about this and they said, how do you do that? And I said, well, you know, I just had them send me the sheets really early. I signed 500 a day. I only let them mail them to me three boxes a time. Every box has 1,500 copies. You know, I've got it all worked out. And Sydney says to me, this is all about procrastination. Sydney says to me, if I had to sign my name 23,000 times, I would start at 11 o'clock at night before they were due. <laughs> At two o'clock in the morning, I would take an entire bottle of Adderall. And then at about six, I would have to have my stomach pumped. And then I would never be able to because I would be in the hospital. And Sissy said, that's exactly what I'd do too. So we, the three of us get into this conversation that was so fascinating. And they said that they were both, I mean, Sid is 25 and Sis is probably 43. They were both the smartest kid in their class from kindergarten on. They were always in the gifted, advanced, 
everything up through their first year of college. And they said that they had no study skills and no work habits because everything was so easy for them that they never had to learn how to do anything. So they just put it off. They just procrastinated forever. And I said, well, all right, I am the polar opposite. I didn't learn how to read until third grade. And we moved all the time. I never went to school when I was a kid. And I was so desperately behind, terrified all the time. And I had amazing study habits because if I didn't have amazing study habits, I would still be in the fourth grade getting a D minus. Like I just barely got past from grade to grade when I was a kid. So the second I walked in after school, I sat down and started my homework because it was hard and I couldn't possibly put it off. I needed all that time. My sister, however, who's older than I am, was always the first in her class and graduated number one in her class. She was one of those people who would start her homework at three o'clock in the morning and then finish it at five and then go in and say, oh, I was up all night doing my homework, which they thought meant that she was even smarter. I mean, she's unbelievably right. smart. So anyway, Sydney and Sis and I are, are having this conversation and I said, that's why I can, I don't procrastinate and I can do my writing and I can sign my tip sheets. And Sid said, it's not fair. I wish I was the dumbest kid in the class. <laughs> and Sissy said, if I was the dumbest kid in the class, I'd own the bookstore. <laughs> I wouldn't be working in the bookstore. And I just thought, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, like, my sister's life has been so much harder than mine because she was the brilliant one. She was the one that everybody was like, well, you're never going to have to work. Everything's going to be so easy for you. Okay. And she didn't get her skill set going. Didn't I'm see so that one I'm coming. So, I, I'm sure I'm not alone in being reassured by the fact that procrastination is the mark of a genius. <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely right. Okay. Well, the rest of us just have to buckle down and get to work. So just to be clear, just to be abundantly please, clear. Please, please be clear. So you're just, you, you, you think about the book and then you sit down. How many days a week do you, do you do, I mean, do you, when you're writing the book, do you write like five days a week, a certain number of hours or what do you do? You just sit down and you're like, you la, know la, la, and you start writing. I do my best. You don't think, you don't sit down or, or get on the treadmill desk and think, you know, actually, the floor needs to be swept, or the I, books need to be organized, or the I do need to shop online for this new thing. Like, it's distract. Like, what I do is I avoid. Like, I know I have to do the work, and I do the work, but I avoid it for a while. I think it's called procrastination. Yeah. I, I put it off for some time, and then, and then, which, then it, the anxiety grows, and I procrastinate right, more. Right. And I, I can solve okay. this for you. Okay. I mean, sir, this is actually just between us. There, you know the principle of everything that rises must converge. I do. And a very long time ago, I used to wait until the pain of yes. not writing became worse than the pain of writing. And that's when I would start. 
That's pretty much when I start too. Right. Yeah. So then I thought, okay, instead of waiting, when I always know that I'm going to start at that point, I could just take a shortcut at the bottom and go straight over to work. Yeah, it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Yeah. So just think of it, you know, the graph, everything that rises must converge, but you can just... And then there's like the little path through the woods to the lake. Just straight over. And you just go... And then you just go to work. Okay. We are going to start tomorrow, Ann Patchett. You can... You can give me a call <laughs> okay. anytime, and okay. I can pep talk you. I will do that. You know, we, I have, to, we have some questions from the audience, right. don't we? There, I can see them Yeah, are there looming. There's lurking questions. There's questions lurking in the corner of the room. Good job. Thank, Thank you. you very much. But Thank it's you. also just like we have so many um, more things to, to talk about. Right. You know, I'm going to read these questions, but I do want to ask you... One of the things, one of the many things I loved about this book is, of course, we have you know, the, the primary, the family, and then we have the people in the past. And there are so many characters in this book who we, we would call minor characters. Yes. And yet everyone is huge and significant and distinctive. Yes. And there's just so much to talk about with each of these people. And so I wondered if you could just talk about one of the, what we would call the minor characters. Tell us a story about him or her or what, you know, what went into crafting that character or how you you know, what, what you brought into um, creating that character. Uncle Wallace. Uncle Wallace is, um, is a, a guy named Albert Long who played on a television show, and he is the washed-up marquee name who comes to Summerstock to play the stage manager every year. And he was just so much fun. But the best part is my friend Judy is married to Tommy and Tommy is a gastroenterologist. Judy is actually a biomedical engineer. They're very smart. And so my husband is a doctor and I get to say things like, okay, I want some, I'm always saying this to Carl, I want someone to die (laughs) in three weeks from the original event. They can't be in a coma. Uh, And then he comes up with something. I remember one day, I remember one day we were were in a hardware store and I picked up a wrench. I don't remember what book this was. And I turned around to Carl and I said, do you think you could kill someone (laughs) with this wrench? And he said, what happened to you when you were a child? <laughs> no, it is an occupational hazard. I sometimes find myself Googling things that I think, I hope nobody's going to, the FBI is not going to search my computer right. anytime soon. But, but when, when Uncle Wallace has esophageal varices yeah. and there's, there's a lot of blood involved, and I called Tommy, Judy's husband, Tommy, the gastroenterologist, and he told me that in 1988, if you had esophageal varices, which you're just hemorrhaging blood up from your esophagus, you've ruptured something. And um, Spoiler he said, alert. Yeah. yeah, right? Uh, you'll be fine. It won't wreck the book for you. They would put a football helmet. I couldn't understand this to save my life. They would put a football helmet, not like a hospital version of a football helmet, but um, 
What's your pro it's football like team? Ducks. Well, we don't have a. Do oh. we have a pro football team? No, we don't. Um, <laughs> we so let's just say a Seahawks helmet. Or, no, it's the du Oregon Ducks or, or Beavers, depending and, on who you are. But I'm a duck. Tie My a rubber tube that goes down the throat that has a balloon in it that holds your esophagus in place, and you would tie it onto the face guard of the helm, and I'm just like, this is what I live for. Yeah. This is the magic. I know when the sweet cherries come out, I know that you're gonna be rehearsing Fool for Love with actual tequila, and I know that you put a tube down and you just want us to start answering these questions. All right, all right. Okay. Let's, let's pay Enough attention. Enough about all of that. So. Can I, just say, can I just say that when we came here tonight, I was supposed to stand at the podium for 25 minutes and give a speech and then sit down and we were going to do this and I was like, oh, that'll never work. <laughs> okay, what you got? I know, this has been a lot of fun. This has really been very talking. good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I hope I, you guys are having fun too. She's, she's baiting you. She's baiting you into <laughs> clapping. Okay, this is actually one of the questions I, I had in my little noggin, too. Um, you dedicated the book to the author, Kate, Kate DiCamillo. Yeah. Um, and have Go talked Kate. about her being an inspiration. Can you share your thoughts about the dedication? I was curious, too. Um, okay, so one of the nice things about getting older and having written a lot of books is that I no longer have to dedicate books to my family because I have dedicated a book to every single one of them. And now I'm on to friends. And I can just dedicate a book to my friends because I want to. And I love Kate D. Camillo, who I call Fluffy. Uh, and every morning, Fluffy sends me an email and she says, I'm going down into the rabbit hole to work. I hope you have a good day. And then when I was writing Tom Lake, she would say, I'm going down into the rabbit hole. You're going to the cherry orchard. Have a good day. And then she would send me an email at night saying, have you come out of the cherry orchard? I'm here. I'm here at the edge of the orchard. I'm holding up the lantern so you can see your way out. And that was the dedication. Children's book people are better. They're better people. <laughs> in, in the same way, you know, you know how people talk about firemen and they're like, oh, you know, the best people are firemen. The best people are children's book authors and illustrators. And I have two, well, I've got Robin Price Glasser, who's, who's an illustrator. I have several people who are close in the children's world, but I'm, I'm really close with Kate and I'm really close with Sandy Boynton. And um, I know, right? Okay. All right, hold on. To, no clapping. No clapping. But really, hold on to yourself, because you're not going to believe this. Sandy Boynton's new book, which is called Woohoo, Woohoo, You're Doing Great, which is unbelievable, is dedicated to me. Right? That's how special I am. And, but so the, you've thing, got the, jam the thing about emails... The thing about emails, when yeah, you yeah. email with Sandy Boynton, those emails are never more than eight words long. <laughs> it's so great. You email with a novelist, with like a grown-up novelist, those things go on forever. Um, but Kate, 
you know, really short emails. It just fills my heart with love. The emails were so good that I dedicated a book to her. Okay. Here's another question that I, that I wanted to ask you about. Um, tell us about the cover of Tom Lake. But oh, then, yes. But then I have a second, like, little sub-question that I was curious about when I saw your dress. Did you plan, like, are you trying to kind of, like, thematically match your book cover with your... Yes. Yes, yeah. okay. But I actually, I've owned this dress for years. Okay, so... Um, last, a year ago last May, I was giving a talk at the American, uh, the American Library in Paris. My husband and I went to the Angerie and turned a corner and we saw this painting by Gustav Kalabat and I was halfway through writing the novel and I said, hey, look, there's the cover of my new novel. And I went to the gift shop and I bought several postcards and I mailed them to my editor and the art director at HarperCollins and I said, I haven't finished this book yet, but this is the cover. <laughs> and it's a giant decorative panel and it's oriented the other way. So in the real painting, it's like this. And when they gave me the cover, and the reason that it's like this, that there's this blank pace in the painting, is because there was going to be a chest in front of this, so the artist didn't bother to paint daisies right here, because there was going to be a piece of furniture in front of it. And when they sent me the cover, I said, well, I really like it, but you've oriented it wrong. It should be like this. And they said, no, we can't do this. The reason why? because the shelves at Target have lips on them, which means that the bottom 15% of the jacket is cut off. If you flip the orientation, that would have been my name. Wow. Okay, do you think that we should read Our Town Before Tom Lake? You don't need to read Our Town Before Tom Lake, you just need to read Our Town at some point in your life. It's a little bit like Our Town is to Tom Lake what David Copperfield is to Demon Copperhead. Uh, you can absolutely read Demon Copperhead without reading David Copperfield, but it's a really good time to read David Copperhead. David, I, that's so hard to say. David Copperfield anyway. And the difference is, our town is only gonna take you an hour and a half. Okay, first of all, uh, this writer says, thank you for writing books. Oh, you're welcome, What thank was you. the best piece of advice you ever received about writing and also the worst? Um, the, ev the best piece of advice I ever received about writing. Alan Gerganis, uh, volume volume, write a ton, and blow all the bad writing within you out of you. And don't make any decisions about what you're writing until you have a giant stack of pages. People try to get real precious right at the beginning and they'll write a page and then work on it, work on it, work on it. He was just like, write, 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 write. And that was really a great piece of advice. The worst piece of advice, boy, I've gotten some, I've gotten some bad ones. Um, and I, I got some really bad pieces of advice about this book. Oh, Just, really? I always get my friends to read the book. Uh -huh. And I, I had a friend who hated this book. 
with a white hot passion um, and who gave me some really bad advice. And I just said, I love you and I really appreciate your time. Um, and that was it. How did that, um, I mean, I know that didn't feel good, but um, how, what do you do with that? You just say thank you and I love you and... Does it make you feel like you're not gonna send that friend your next book? Uh, that actually is, that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Which isn't like, it, there's a difference between somebody giving you tough notes and somebody just hating what you've done. Yeah, I think that is such, like, to me, that's the way to survive any kind of workshop or critique is there are people who are essentially on your side and if you feel like they're on your side or on the book side, right. they can actually really, you know, give you some real deep criticism. Yeah, absolutely, which but, you want. But you, tr you want, you want it to and be you better. can trust them. Yeah. But if, you, if somebody, if the, if the initial premise is, I, I basically hate this book, right. they're not there's, going to be really able to There's really nowhere to go from there. Yeah. yeah, and that's true with friendships too, I think. Like, have you ever had a friend who didn't actually like you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. Like, that was a rather yes. late in life realization. It's like, oh, you don't want the best for me. You don't actually like me. <laughs> that's called a frenemy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, what's, so, so that's, I mean, did you do the worst? Of, I mean, it's just like the, the worst advice is, is the, if trust the worst me, advice was really you. just yeah. very specific. Yeah. I've had just some terrible, super specific advice in my life about projects. You wanted the best piece of advice? I've got two pieces of advice, life advice, both from my father, that were the two best pieces of advice I ever got from anybody about anything. Okay, number one, never leave a paper trail. <laughs> Which really was in my ear when social media was invented, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you mean I'm going to... I'm gonna put something on the internet and it's never gonna go away? Oh no, I'm not doing that. And I never have engaged with any form of social media. I've never even looked at it because of that piece of advice, which has made my life beautiful and easy. Um, and my father's other piece of advice that comes up all the time in my life, if you don't want to engage with someone, don't engage with them. Don't explain to them why you're not engaging with them. Don't, like if somebody comes at you, just nothing. Give them absolutely nothing and they'll go away. Right. Yeah, thanks dad. That's good advice. Yeah. So I think I told you before we came on stage that I both read the book and listened to it. It was a beautiful read and a really beautiful listen because of course, you had another national treasure. Yes, I reading, did. <laughs> narrating yes. the book, Meryl Streep. Yeah. How did that come to happen? I asked her. Here's like so, hanging out with Meryl. So this is, this is the, the takeaway for Ann Patchett. I am, I am in charge of my career. I get the jam, I get the postcards, I get the tote bag, I find the cover, I write the flap copy. I plan my tour and I call Meryl Streep. <laughs> because I met Meryl Streep 
It really, if you want, that was another great piece of life advice that Alan Gerganis gave me. Every single thing in your career is your responsibility yeah. because your name is on it and people are going to think that it's you. Don't sit around and wait for somebody to give you a cover that you like because they won't. You go out and you get it and you hand it to them. Uh, 15 years ago, I had lunch with Meryl Streep because there was a period of about seven minutes where it looked like she might play Roxanne Koss in the movie of Bel Canto that didn't work. But it was meaningful and I thought she might remember me. And so when I uh, wanted to ask her about this because she has three daughters and it was her voice in my head, my agent is Felicity Blunt. Felicity Blunt is the sister of Emily Blunt and Felicity Blunt is married to Stanley Tucci who played Meryl's husband in Julie and Julia. So, I email Felicity and I said, if I write a letter to Meryl, would you send it to her? And she said, no, but here's her email. And so I just emailed her and I said, this is what the book is about. I made it like three sentences and I would love to have you do the audio. Some of, I mean, The Testament of Mary by uh, Colm Toybean is perhaps the greatest audio performance of all time. Thank you, Meryl Streep. Also, Meryl Streep's reading of Nora Ephron's Heartburn. Yes. If you haven't it's listened so to that, good. it's yeah. unbelievable. So anyway, I sent her this email and she wrote me back and she said, I am so honored that you would ask me. Mm, yeah. I was like, because who else was I going to ask? And, um, and she so said, good. yes, I would love to do it. And I said, don't you want to read the book first? She said, um, no. I'll, I'll get to it, but I'm based on those three sentences. Oh, I love it. It's, yeah. it's so beautiful. Have you it's, listened to I it? I have, and I don't normally, Yeah. but I listen to Tom Hanks read The Dutch House, and I listen to Meryl Streep read. Oh, it's, that's wonderful. Fantastic. Okay, we just have time for a couple more questions. I know, and I still have to say some things about books before okay. we get off Other, show. Yeah, other than writers and their books... Maybe this would be a good time to also throw in your book recommendations. Okay. But other than writers and their books, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Every single day. You know, um, boy, it's a, on one, uh, one thing is it's, it's a brain chemistry thing. Mm -hmm. And this is... I am a cheerful person. I, I don't procrastinate and I'm glass half full and I was that way when I was born. Um, and people coming into the bookstore, people showing up in theaters to talk about books, people caring enough to, oh God, come to Tennessee, friends. You just wouldn't believe what we've got going on. But people showing up at the Capitol every morning to stand up against the legislature in matters of gun control and matters of book banning and all the kids, all of the kids who are doing such amazing work, but also, God, hedgehogs give me hope and, and, and cherry trees and um, jam, jam and you. Love. I mean, like the love of, I mean, the love that's here and the laughter that's here in this room. Absolutely. I think that's, and so much of Tom Lake is about that, actually. That, that, 
there are so many things that give us hope. One of the, my favorite sentences in this book, I'm going to just paraphrase it. It's, well, you, you wrote it. So it's about the beauty and suffering. Yeah, thing. beauty and suffering, are they're equally true. Equally true. And, and, and the horror of life exists beside the blue skies and the green grass and all of that. But people think you're a fool if, if you have hope and if you're happy, and if you're not crushed by despair. But there is so much love. There is so much love and kindness, especially if you look close. If you start looking at people you don't know who you've never met, you think the world's a horror show. When you look at the people that you do know, it's good. Yeah. You can clap. Mm. Your clapping is granted. So, um, do you, I, I'll hold this one till the very end, but okay. because I know you wanted also to talk about books you've been loving lately. I mean, the I mean, bookseller in you. I know. As well as I the, have to. the book lover and author. I what are you to. reading and what do you love and what are you recommending to people? Um, okay, I just today finished a book that I didn't love and I won't tell you what it is, uh -oh. but I bought a copy of Lori Colwyn's Happy All the Time because I knew that I needed it as a palate cleanser, and so I'm really excited about that. Uh, there's a book that's for sale on the table out there called Do Tell by Lindsay Lynch, which is a book that I have been promoting throughout my tour, and Lindsay and I did a big chunk of the tour together. She is the buyer at Parnassus Books. She has been working for us since she graduated from Kenyon College when she was 21, and she is 31, and she just wrote her first book and published it with Doubleday, and it's terrific. And what I wanna say is in the same way that you have to support independent bookstores, you also have to support first-time novelists. You have to get out of your comfort zone and not always buy books by Cheryl Strayed and Ann Patchett, but take a risk on something that you haven't read by somebody who you don't know anything about. And this is a book about the golden age of Hollywood. It is wildly entertaining, it's glamorous, it's funny, it's got a bit of a thriller edge to it, and it will also tell you that the things that happened to women in the 40s are happening to women now. It has a beautiful ending, which, boy, a lot of books that seem really good don't have good endings. Uh, a book that I read maybe 10 days ago, and it was a book that every single bookstore I went to, and I say every night, what are you reading, what are you reading? Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieterer. And it is a nonfiction book about what do we do with the love of the art of people who in fact don't turn out to be good people. How, what do you do with uh, Roman Polanski's films? What do you do with yeah, we could go on and on. It is a book with no easy answers. It's brilliantly written. And then I went back and read her last book, which was called Love and Trouble, which I love. Love too. and Trouble. Yeah, Claire Dieter lives in Seattle or yes. in the Seattle area. She's, yeah, I love her work. Just absolutely terrific. I love James McBride's Heaven and Earth Grocery. I love Colson Whitehead's 
Kirk Manifesto, which is the sequel to Harlem Shuffle. Those are two writers I read every single one of their books. Another writer I read every single one of her books is Zadie Smith, and her new book, The Fraud, came out last week, and it's terrific. Jill Lepore's new collection of essays, The Deadline, is spectacular. Eun Lee, if you like short stories, has a book that came out last week called Wednesday's Child. I know you're like, what, 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 what? Um, go to the Parnassus YouTube channel and watch the Laydown Diaries. You'll get to see Sparky Van Devender, my dog, and you'll get to see Lindsay. Every Tuesday, we do a little program where we hold up books. All books are published on Tuesday, and we talk about what we love. Because even though I am not on social media as someone who looks at it, I am on social media uh, through the bookstore. Yeah, and you're kind of like, I'm not on TikTok, but you're a TikTok star apparently. I am, I am, like I was called by Publishers Weekly. I am a minor TikTok celebrity. All right. <laughs> on Friday on TikTok, I have a, a thing called New to You where I talk about a book that you maybe haven't read, and if you haven't read it, it's new to you, like Unless by Carol Shields or the story of Lucy Galt by William Trevor or Rachel Ingalls, Mrs. Caliban or Edna Ferber's So Big or Jeffrey Wolf's The Duke of Deception. I can do this I bet. I hope somebody's taking notes. But again, if you go to the web, if you go to Parnassus, don't buy your books from Parnassus. Do not support my local independent bookstore. Support your local independent bookstore. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I feel like this whole evening has been leading up to this final question. Okay. From final Nic Jeopardy. Final Cheryl. Jeopardy. From Nicole and Jen. And this is a question for both of us. Would the two of you, Cheryl and Anne, consider doing a podcast together? <laughs> I'm thinking a road show. I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> Anne, why are you looking at me in such a contemplative way? <laughs> I kind of like it. Cheryl. I love it. I dig it. I mean, I think it's a. I think it could work. I think I we think already love each other. We only. do. I think we're well. We're like two and a half hours into our relationship, <laughs> and it's going swimmingly so far. I think it's been really good. You know, that's so interesting. The whole I have no relationship to podcasts, mm -hmm. and people have said to me so many times, hey, "You should do a podcast." Yeah. And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." No, no interest. You and me? Yeah. Okay, but here's the counter offer. Here's you want to hear the <laughs> counter offer, Nicole and Jen? What's... We make jam together. All right. <laughs> well, our podcast could be called called Jam and Jammin. And so we could, we could talk about jam and also, like, books that are jamming. And we could be completely underwritten by jam companies. That's right. <laughs> and we could, we could get them to put whatever we want on the labels. You know how it's so strange in a podcast where like wild Malcolm Gladwell's talking and then all of a sudden he's talking to you about a fluffy mattress or something and you're like... Why is he talking to me about a fluffy mattress? Yeah. But we could be talking about jam and jam. maintain our dignity. But it would be book-themed jams. Yeah. yeah. Should we let him go home, go to yeah. bed? Yeah, we're, we're open to all offers. Let's Portland, I love you. You've been so great. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you, Ann Patchett. That was author Ann Patchett discussing her new novel, Tom Lake, with interviewer Cheryl Strayed. This event was recorded in front of a live audience at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in downtown Portland on September 7th, 2023. 
For information about upcoming events, visit literary-arts.org. And if you want to hear more from Anne and Cheryl's conversation, an extended edition is available on the Archive Project podcast. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Ada Hallstrom. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.